0: Jerusalem has become Egypt. Jerusalem has been in Egypt for a generation by the time the apostles appear on the scene. At Jesus' birth, Herod turns Pharaoh and begins to slaughter the little babies, the boys old and under, around the city of Bethlehem. And as the apostles conduct their ministry in Jerusalem, they are also facing Egypt-like, Pharaoh-like opposition from the Jewish leaders. You remember what happened in Egypt. Moses came doing signs and wonders. He came to introduce Pharaoh to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to demand from Pharaoh that he let the people go. But Pharaoh's response was, I don't know this Yahweh. I've never heard of him. Who is this Yahweh? And in spite of all the plagues and all the wonders and signs that Moses did, Pharaoh hardened his heart until Israel withdrew from Egypt in the Exodus and the Passover, and Pharaoh was killed in the Red Sea after Israel had passed safely through there. All that is happening again. The apostles stand in the place of Moses. They're in the temple in the portico of Solomon doing signs and wonders. The Jewish leaders are in the place of Pharaoh, Instead of accepting the name, this time the name of Jesus, they oppose the name and try to get the apostles to stop speaking the name of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? We don't want to know this Jesus, they say, echoing Pharaoh. As Pharaoh oppressed the people of Israel, so the Jewish leaders begin to oppress the apostles and their followers. They bring them in for interrogation. They jail them. Eventually they beat them. And in the next chapter, chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen is going to be stoned to death. We have this escalating conflict between the Moses-like apostles and the Pharaoh-like Jewish leaders. And the Pharaoh-like Jewish leaders face the same eventual fate that Pharaoh does. Within a generation, Jesus warned already, within a generation, the temple that these Jewish leaders oversee... Will be torn down. There will not be one stone placed upon another. Nothing will be left. They will be as decimated as Egypt was after the plagues and after the Exodus. But the Exodus is not just a conflict between Moses and Pharaoh or between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. There are also continuing tensions and conflicts within the people of God. As soon as Israel gets gets out into the wilderness, people begin complaining and grumbling. We don't have any food. So God answers by sending bread from heaven. We don't have any water. So God makes water spring up from a rock. Let's go back to Egypt. Things were easier in Egypt. Let's go back and be slaves in Egypt. And after the spies spy out the land, come back and give a report about the giants in the land, there's open rebellion against Moses as several people will try to return back to Egypt. The apostles also face tensions within the church as well as opposition outside. And in fact, Luke has structured the early chapters of Acts to show us an alternating pattern. Peter and John heal a lame man by the temple gate. And then the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, bring them in for interrogation. After that uh, interrogation and that warning and threat from the Jewish leaders, there's an internal problem. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. They claim to be bringing a certain... Gift to the church, and they're not bringing the whole, the whole gift that they claim to bring. External threat, internal tension. Then there's another external threat when all of the apostles are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, and that time they're all flogged. And after that external threat and that external warning, there's another internal tension, an internal struggle, just as Israel, uh, Israelites grumbled against Moses in the wilderness about their lack of bread and water, so there are some within the church who are grumbling about the lack of food for their widows. And that pattern of external threat and internal tension continues throughout the book of Acts. As Paul goes out on his mission, he's opposed by the Jews. He's tried. He's beaten. He's stoned to an inch of death, just like the apostles are in the early chapters. But there are also massive struggles within the church, especially between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. How are the Gentiles supposed to be incorporated into this new, fulfilled Israel? And Acts chapter 6 actually anticipates those later tensions and challenges. Acts 6 and 7 are transitional passage. Up to this point, everything has been taking place in Jerusalem, but Acts chapter 6 and 7 begin pointing our attention to things outside of Jerusalem, and a mission that's going to continue beyond Jerusalem out to the Gentiles, out to Samaria, and then to the Gentiles. The 12 have been the primary preachers. They've been doing everything up to this point. We know that there are disciples following them. There there are others who are listening to them and responding and believing and being baptized and sharing in the work of the apostles. But the apostles have been the focus of attention. But now in chapter 6, we have a group of seven men who are added to the apostles an additional set of ministers who serve the church and uh, perform several, uh, various ministries within the church. So the, the the church's leadership is expanding beyond the 12 to include these seven. It's like the expansion of, of uh, ministry in Israel after the Exodus when Israel got out into the wilderness and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, saw that he was spending his whole day uh, trying to to work out battles among the Israelites, trying to judge their battles. And Jethro said, you should appoint wise men who are full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, to share the burden. We heard in our Old Testament text, another example of Moses ordaining, laying his hands on an assistant, Joshua, who's going to lead the people from then on. It's like the appointment of the Levites to assist uh, the priests in their work of ministry in the tabernacle. The 12 don't drop out, but the action moves away from the 12 to all kinds of other ministers, eventually to Paul, and then Paul dominates the latter part of the book of Acts. As the leadership of the church begins to expand from the 12 to include the 7, we begin to see signs that there are people outside of the Hebraic Jews that the apostles represent that are part of the church. There are Hellenists, Hellenistic Jews, Jews from the Greco-Roman world, Jews who've been living out in the diaspora, who speak Greek, who are used to living a Greek lifestyle. They're Jews, but they're Hellenistic Jews, and they are now accompanying and along with the Hebraic Jews in the church. The seven are people of the same background. All of the seven have uh, Greek names. In the latter part of the chapter that I hadn't read, Stephen begins to struggle with the synagogue. Well, we haven't seen synagogues before. Acts, The struggle has been between the apostles and the temple authorities. Now the focus begins to shift from the temple as the center of opposition among the Jews to the synagogue. Again, chapter 6 is anticipating the ministry out into the diaspora, the ministry out to the Greco-Roman world. And when Stephen is charged, false witnesses are brought that bring the same charges against Stephen that they will later bring against Paul. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against the law. He's speaking against the temple. Chapter six is anticipating all the things that are going to happen later. The expansion of the leadership of the church, the expansion of the church's mission outside of Jerusalem, the expansion of the church's mission to include the seven and others who will lead the church. The grumbling that the apostles have to deal with comes from Hellenistic Jews. The word for complaint or grumbling in verse one is the same word that's used in the Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. This is another Exodus motif. But unlike the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness, this grumbling, this complaint, is legitimate. There is something wrong in the community that needs to be addressed. The complaint is coming, and the grumbling is coming, from Hellenistic Jews, Jews from the diaspora who have settled back in Jerusalem, against Hebraic Jews, And the point of the grumbling is that the widows of the Hellenistic Jews are being treated unfairly and are being neglected in the church's daily distribution of food that goes out to widows. This is a big deal for the church. It's an ethnic division within a church that's supposed to incorporate people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. If Jews can't get along, Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, and Jews from the Diaspora, if they can't get along in the church, how can the church expect to incorporate Gentiles? Besides, the apostles are all Hebraic Jews. And if the Hebraic Jews seem to be getting their share and the Hellenistic Jews not, it looks like the apostles are playing favorites. Their widows are going to be taken care of. Widows from outside their ethnic circle. Widows outside their cultural circle, circle, their Aramaic-speaking, Hebraic circle, are going to get the short end of the stick. But more fundamentally, it's a big deal because the care of widows is a big deal. It was a big deal for Israel. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Yahweh commanded from Mount Sinai. And if you do, he warns, I will make your... Uh, your children orphans and your uh, women widows. In other words, he will apply a lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If you oppress widows and orphans, then your land will be full of widows and orphans. Yahweh gave Israel specific rules to care for widows and orphans. Landowners were not allowed to go back and pick up the dropped sheaves of grain during the harvest. That was to be left for the widows and orphans who would glean from the fields. The produce of the fields was not just for the landowner. The produce of the fields was for the landowner and also for the orphans and widows who dwelled in Israel. They weren't supposed to go back to the olive trees and beat the branches of the olive trees a second time. You beat the branches of the olive trees to make the ripe olives fall, but they're not supposed to go back and keep beating the branches and get as, much, uh, as many olives as they can. They go once And then the rest of the olives on the tree are left for the widows and orphans in the land. You're not supposed to go back and gather the grapes that have fallen from your vineyard. You get one harvest from the vineyard, and the rest of your vineyard is for those who don't have any land. The plenty of the land and the produce of the land is for everyone in the land, and specifically for widows and orphans. And Yahweh warns, if you don't do this, if you keep the produce of the land for yourselves for those of you who own land and vineyards and olive groves, then I will make your children orphans and your women widows. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. And especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus continues to care for widows and orphans. We see this particularly, uh, as I said, in Luke's gospel at the beginning of his ministry in uh, his, his sermon at, uh, at Nazareth. Luke chapter 4. Jesus refers to the widow of Zarephath and Elijah's ministry to the widow of Zarephath. There are many widows, he said. There were many widows in Elijah's time in Israel. But the Lord didn't send him to any Israelite widow. The Lord sent his prophet outside of the land to the Gentiles up into the region of Tyre and Sidon, the region of Jezebel, to find a widow in Zarephath and Elijah cared for her, provided food for her, raised her son from the dead. And Jesus is comparing his ministry to the ministry of Elijah. I'm come, and the scope of my ministry is going to expand to widows and orphans and the oppressed outside of Israel. That's what I'm here for. I am Yahweh incarnate. I am the husband of widows. I am the protector of the fatherless, just as Yahweh was. Jesus is claiming that same mission in his sermon at Nazareth. Later in his ministry, at the gate of the city of Nain, there, Jesus meets a funeral procession. A young man has died, and the funeral procession is a procession is led by his mother, a widow mourning her only son. The widow has no husband to take care of her. Now the widow has no son to take care of her? Is she going to be provided for? Is the village around her going to care for her? She's in a vulnerable position, as all widows were in that time. And Jesus provides for the widow, provides for her future, provides for her care by raising the son from the dead. He is truly Elijah, who raises the children of widows and returns them to their mothers so that they can provide and care for the widows. And then in the gospel lesson, Jesus is warning his disciples about the ways of the scribes and the Pharisees. They devour widows' houses. The land is supposed to feed widows. The temple is supposed to represent Israel in feeding widows. Instead, the temple authorities devour widows' houses. And the widow that Jesus sees putting in her last two pennies into the temple treasury is a victim of that temple system. She's been persuaded that it's her duty to give the last of her money to the temple. Instead of the temple caring for her, the temple authorities have squeezed out the last two coins from this widow. And it's that scene in Luke, it's that scene that leads Jesus to say, The temple is finished. There will come a time when not one stone will be on another because this has become a temple that devours and oppresses widows. Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Jesus takes up for widows. Jesus takes up for orphans. He's husband to widows. He's father to orphans. And he expects his church, the early church and the modern church, he expects his church to carry out that same work. The apostles lead a church that is supposed to be the new and true Israel. There's not supposed to be any poor among them. And they've been doing a good job of caring for the poor in their midst. There's supposed to be an Israel where widows and orphans are cared for, where they're not left dangling. And the church is actually doing that. We shouldn't neglect the fact that they are actually providing for widows. They are the counter-temple movement, even though there's a glitch in the system. They are actually caring for the widows. They're providing daily food for the widows, which is quite an operation, as you can imagine. We don't know how many widows there were, but there must be some kind of system that you can gather food and distribute it to the widows. They're doing what Jesus has called them to, and yet there's a glitch in the system, and this is, as I said, a big deal if any widows in the church, if any of them are being neglected, then they're not living out the gospel. They're not yet a gospel-shaped church. They're not yet conformed to the mission of Jesus. The apostles quickly take action. The 12 quickly take action to correct this problem. And it's instructive to look at how they respond to this problem. They don't respond to the problem by redoubling their own efforts to care for widows. In fact, they aren't going to care for the widows. They're not going to serve at tables. Commentators that are offended by this, the apostles seem to be giving up on care for widows as an important part of the church's life. They're going after spiritual goods and spiritual activities like word and prayer and not doing the physical menial labor of caring for widows and serving at tables. I don't think that's what's going on here. Instead, the apostles are recognizing the scope and the limits of their work. They have been the leaders of the church, but they're not supposed to be doing everything in the church. They're not the only leaders of the church. They're the initial leaders of the church, but there will be lots of other leaders, even in the first century and certainly over the centuries since. Many leaders in the church, and they don't all do the same thing. The apostles know that their calling is to a service of word and prayer. The word that they use for ministry here, for their own work in verse 4, is diaconia, deacon. They're deacons. They're the ones who are serving as deacons, ministering the word. Whether they're writing the gospel stories or whether they're preaching and teaching, probably they're doing both. They're doing the deacon work of prayer, while other, the seven, are doing the deacon work of serving tables. Both of them have their ministry. And we see the beginning of what Paul describes as a church that's like a body. One body with many members. One spirit. Many manifestations of the spirit. Some are devoted to the word. Some are devoted to prayer. Some are devoted to prophecy. Some speak in tongues. But some help. Some serve tables. Some have the spiritual gift of administration. The word that Paul uses. Those of you who are administrators, don't think uh, lowly of yourself, little of yourself, because you all you do is minister yourself. That's a spiritual gift, according to Paul. And we see the beginning of the formation of that kind of church in this, in this chapter. They know that they have a limited ministry. They don't have to do everything. They don't have to lead everything. They appoint seven to carry out the service of the tables. They come to the congregation with a proposal, and the proposal, interestingly, is not a proposal about tweaking the system. What we need to do is to gather more, have more efficient distribution. No, the solution is to find men, people. Systems are important. Organizational charts and flow charts are useful, but they won't work if you don't have good people, the right people in those positions. They select men or propose to the congregation to select men to lead this work. And these men are highly qualified. Sometimes we think of this as the appointment of deacons, and deacons are in charge of the mundane things of the church. But notice the qualifications that they're supposed to have. They're supposed to be men who are of good reputation. That means they're already in the church, and they already have some kind of stature in the church, have good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, Stephen is singled out as a man who is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of men who lead this work of administering the relief to the orphans. They're not The apostles are not neglecting this or thinking, uh, thinking little of the distribution of food. They want the best men in this position. Men like Solomon. Royal men who was given the Spirit so that he had wisdom. Not just wisdom, for saying Proverbs, and not just wisdom for passing judgment in court, but wisdom to organize the complex construction work on the temple, wisdom to organize his servants at his house, to choreograph what's happening in his own household to such an extent that the Queen of Sheba is breathtaking when she sees the choreography and the beauty of Solomon's house. That's wisdom, and that's what these men are supposed to have. They're supposed to be full of the spirits, so they can carry out this work. They're like Joseph. Joseph organized the distribution, the gathering and distribution of food for the world. He was full of the spirit of the gods, as Pharaoh said. And now these seven are full of the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Jesus, to carry out the same ministry. The apostles bring this proposal to the congregation, and almost instantly the grumbling turns into approval. The people approve it. The apostles don't bring this as something that's already uh, being implemented. They bring it as a proposal before the people. They leave the people with the job of selecting those who are going to serve in this capacity. After the people have selected them, they bring them back to the apostles and stand them before the apostles. And then somebody prays and somebody lays hands in verse 6. It's not clear whether it's the apostles or the people. Who are doing that? I think it's deliberately ambiguous. They're supposed to think, who is it? Are the apostles laying hands? Are the apostles praying over them? What's well, both? The whole pro- the whole process is a con- is a conjoined process of the apostles and of the people. The apostles propose, the people approve. The people select the men and then bring to the apostles for their approval, and then somebody prays and lays hands on them and designates and ordains them to this work. Everyone. Has the Spirit. So everyone is involved in this decision and in this solution to the problem. And the solution works. The grumbling stops. The widows are cared for, presumably. The apostles devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer as they said they would. And the story ends in verse 7 by showing the success of their work. The word of God kept on spreading The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. A great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is another Exodus motif. At the beginning of the book of Exodus we're told that Israel was being fruitful. They were multiplying. They were increasing greatly. Exodus piles up these words to describe how fertile and fruitful the Israelites are and that's what spooks Pharaoh into thinking he needs to arrest the procreation, the, the, the fertility of Israel by killing their baby boys. Luke does the same thing. He piles up terms to describe the spreading of the word and the increase of disciples. A great many disciples. The word of God increased daily. New disciples continue to increase greatly. Even priests. Even those who are part of the Jerusalem that has become an Egypt are becoming obedient to the faith. And they're being incorporated into the church. The church is becoming a mixed multitude. Even priests are joining them. They're getting ready for a great exodus. They're getting ready for a great deliverance. The solution works. But I think it's important to see behind the scenes what the solution, where the solution actually comes from. It looks like the apostles come up with this plan. The people implement the plan. And it's successful. Widows are cared for. The word of God keeps spreading because now the apostles are devoted, specializing in the word of God and in prayer. But behind the scenes, behind the scenes, all this is a work of the spirit. It's not programs that guide and direct the church. It's not even people directly or uh, primarily, uh, fundamentally, that guide and direct the church. It's spirit-filled people carrying out programs. But it's the spirit who directs the church. It's the spirit who inspired this suggestion from the apostles. It's the spirit who gave this sense of unity among the people who agreed to the proposal. It's the spirit who equips the seven so they can carry out this work. And interestingly, it's the spirit who blows them onto different work. The rest of the chapter and the rest of the next couple of chapters are dominated by the seven. Stephen is the primary character at the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Philip then takes over. We have a whole chapter of the exploits and acts of Philip. These are two of the deacons. The two of the seven, I should say. Two of the seven who are supposed to be serving tables. We never see them serving tables. Luke is subtly showing us The apostles make plans. The people approve plans. The seven are designated to a certain work, but the Spirit blows where he wills. And if the Spirit wants to blow Stephen into witness and signs and wonders and eventual martyrdom, then the Spirit will do that. And if the Spirit wants to blow Philip out of Jerusalem, out to Samaria, and then blow him along to meet an Ethiopian eunuch, and then blow him away who knows where, the Spirit blows where he wills, and he will do that. The Spirit continues to be, today, the director of the church. The Spirit is the one who moves the church. The Spirit is the one who opened new vistas uh, for mission of the church. The Spirit is the one who can blow us off course. We need to be ready in case he blows us off course. We need to be ready in case he blows you into unknown territory so you can stay in step with the Spirit who blows where he wills. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you gathered your church as the new Israel, and called us as you called Israel, to care for widows and orphans, aliens, the poor. We pray that your Spirit would fill us with love for those, that we would imitate you, you who are the husband of widows, and the father of the orphans. We pray that you would make us that kind of church, reflecting the character of Jesus in our life together and in the way we engage the world outside. We pray that you would do that for the sake of Jesus Christ, so that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and honored by our life as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.